Hi folks, I'm Alan Watt and this is Cutting Through the Matrix on the 19th of November 2017. Here we are with another winter setting in here with about a foot, of, maybe a foot and a half of snow outside there because it's going to snow, it has been snowing and it's going to snow for another couple of days apparently up where I am right now. And just to cap it off too, on the Friday, my power steering pump, I think probably the pressure line, I don't know yet, blew. I've replaced everything else in that darn, well I shouldn't say that because Murphy's listening. And Murphy is amazing because if you miss anything, you see, he'll, he'll go for that thing. And that's the next thing to bust. There's hardly anything left on that car not to bust. I'm not kidding you. It's amazing. What a money pit it's been. And every time it's a money pit to be added to, it's because it's another darned emergency. You, need, you almost need two vehicles, don't you? One on standby, and one you, you can just run around until you need the other one. Because that's how things happen, as we live in this world. This world is not Disney. The world is pretty, well, scary at times, a little bit fun at times as well. That's what life is. And pleasant, uh, sometimes serene, a little bit serene when you're maybe in some nice spot where it's a nice day and you get some decent weather and you have something to look at that's, that's not cities and concrete and things like that, but just natural landscape. That's when you, you, you get that connection once in a while, don't you? And that's what you need really because everything in this system which is perception management. It really is perception management from a thousand sources now, which has created it to be a different species almost than the previous species of humans. Because in my dad's day, he could walk around anywhere in Scotland. Not that he could, not that he could walk anywhere because he, he couldn't afford to move very far to even walk at that time. That's because the economy was so bad. You find that they still had walks in the country they could go. And lots of people did it. It's a natural thing. They didn't have earbuds sticking out their, their ears. They could hear nature. They could hear the little burn that they walk alongside the stream. They could hear the water gurgling. And they'd hear the little breezes in the, in, the, in the leaves, in the branches. Just natural sounds. That's nature. And up until that time, when you think about it, people had lived like that for thousands of years. Thousands. Yeah, they had radio at home. But even the radio at that time was pretty limited in Britain. When my dad was really small, a lot of the houses couldn't even afford radios at that time. <laughs> the UK was such an incredibly orchestrated, well-developed system of managing the people right down to the wages en masse that they would pretty well get. Uh, you would find that there wasn't a lot of money difference between one occupation and another at the bottom level. Across the whole country, even up to the tradesmen's level, it wasn't much, much bigger, much higher. But they had definitely had more peace and quiet to think, even though they were given world wars and economic depressions. Because they don't, they don't give you peace. If you've got peace, you might start thinking that you had the same rights as animals, for instance, which is quite a lot these days. And you might demand those rights and tell others to get off your back. What gives them the right to tell you what to do? Uh, but so, so they always give you scary scenarios to keep you in line, so that you'll 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 do what you're told to do, and you go off and fight wars when you're told to go and fight them to save you from whatever it happens to be. And of course, it's, it's one thing after another, and you can't win. 
as I say, can't win, because once they had World War I over with, they had the Great Depression. And the, the Depression started in Germany about 1922 or so, probably before that even in reality, because they had to pay off all the different reparations to every other country that had been involved in World War I, naturally leading to the crash. And it spread across the world, and uh, it's just one thing after. And then the, only, the only reason that the Western countries got out of that depression was another world war. Kind of weird, isn't it? And then you read all these strange writings by people who are revered, like Maynard Keynes, things like that. And they go on about, it's, it's good for countries to borrow money. You, you wonder who they're working for. It's good for countries to borrow money and spend it into society. Well, the, more, the thing is, that that's fine and dandy, but the money you're borrowing has always got interest attached to it, massive interest. So you never get out from underneath it. And naturally, in today's society, we have the legacy of having to earn lots and lots and lots of dollars or, or pounds or whatever it happens to be to get the basic, even the basic things, even a roof over your head. I can't imagine what it's like living in the cities right now. I really can't. Anywhere. And I wouldn't want to, because cities are anathema to me. No life is just too bizarre, too fake, hyper and neurotic. And it's a place that everyone goes hoping to make money, but many of them get trapped in it and they can't even get out of it. It's rather sad. But getting back to what I was saying, they've got all these different articles out as were constantly studied, always studied. Every country is the same. Don't think for, 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 for a second that it's just your particular country that's being studied. We are under a globalist system. I've said that for many, many, many years. And, in fact, I think we've always been under it, this particular, everyone is alive today. And I think it's so incredibly well organized at the very top with all the organizations that are all intertwined, they call it circles, that they connect with other circles, etc. Uh, and, of course, as Quigley said himself, Professor Carl Quigley, we, we have a, a kind of new feudal system where corporations run it all. That's a new feudalist systems. And the CEOs are, are pretty well the corporate leaders. But we also have the same CEOs that belong to big institutions that help bring in the global society. Uh, they brought in the same or- organization called the Royal Institute for International Affairs, brought in the, the World Bank. They brought in the IMF. They put forth uh, the recommendation to even create what was a League of Nations that became the United Nations. Pretty well every institution that's global, that manages the world and its finances, was set up by them, a private group. I mean, you don't vote for them either. And many of your politicians belong to it in the US and Canada. Many of the, the, the members of politics and the higher bureaucracies belong to it as well. The CFR, Council of Foreign Relations. They have their Pacific Rim group too, the Far Eastern Studies groups that help set up the, the whole free trade idea for China, including all the countries that will eventually go under the dominion of China because they want three trading blocks. And, of course, Australia and New Zealand, etc., are being heavily, heavily engineered right now in all aspects of social engineering, too, to become part of China. They're being trained. Recently, too, I've seen the articles to do with one-child policies for, 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 for Australians, for instance. 
things like that, which are all the mandates of, of China. And the European Union, which has really <laughs> has been quite the thing, isn't it? Where you can just churn out cash and money to keep things going, and, and it gets inflated all the time. And yet they've got thousands and thousands of think tanks around the parliament buildings in Brussels, which runs the whole of the EU, supposedly. Lobbyists, lobby groups, galore, thousands of lobby groups, all asking for, for the cash of the taxpayers of all these countries to be funneled their, in their direction. And they've had official exposés of this where money's just, millions and billions are just going missing, and no one's checking it out, which means that the ones at the top, they could check it out, are obviously in on it. Or, or it's so much of a labyrinth that no one could follow it anyway. How come it's so complex when you get higher up, when you're trying to find out things? How come it's so complex? What you're seeing in every area is a multi-tiered system of reality and how the world is governed and the different organizations that govern it. Today, the big buzzwords is, and has been for a long time actually, is governance. Governance. A technique of running the world, really, with using, yeah, that what you think of as elected government, be it real or fake, doesn't make any difference. And also with the non-governmental organizations, various organizations set up and run and financed by the foundations, and often your tax money too, these are all private organizations that are told what to push and what to lobby for, and the governments, with a wink, take their petitions and sign things into law and says, you will work on that because that's the politically correct agenda. In other words, everyone knows if you want promotion in the system, here's what you go along with. That's all pervasive today, isn't it? That you wouldn't find a single person going into school teaching that's got an opinion to the contrary of all the PC stuff that's been demanded today. There are even ministers going into different religious organizations, going in and preaching that truly really it's all about same-sex couples and so on, getting married and that. This is in religion, for instance, because everyone knows. This matter, and I'm not putting a stance on any of this stuff. I'm just saying everyone knows. Everyone knows if you want to get ahead in any profession, You've got to go along with all of this stuff and, and appear to be very enthusiastic about it. And the world is run, by, as I say, by people you never meet or never even hear of generally. And top professors and, again, CEO chiefs who are given almost a celebrity status as some kind of genius or something. And other ones, too, that simply are, are businessmen who, who are apparently are good at investing and managing money. That's not a qualification as far as I'm concerned to put them in positions of power to run my life. Everything is in flux right now, except for, for the public. The public are given well-orchestrated blitzes on what to occupy themselves with. I've said over the last few months, actually, look at mainstream media, especially the British system, and everyone is like, is like a tabloid newspaper online. And you've never seen so much flesh in your life. Bear flesh, as you'll see down the sides. And the stories are not news at all. I can remember reading on the air years ago that that's what eventually would replace news. It was planned that way. That celebrity status and what they're up to and all this nonsense will replace news because they were going to train the public to start stepping out of even desiring to know how the world's run, how their world is run 
and all the, the, the dire things that are happening around them if, and the fact that they should have some kind of opinion or input into that kind of stuff and so on. They're being trained out of that altogether. And everything, everything, everything is have fun, isn't this silly, and let's play forever. Just play, play, play. That is an old, old agenda, by the way. And that's what has always astonished me from when I was back in Scotland, for instance. And you go into the library, and you could find professors writing books then. And the more well-known ones, of course, they belong to the big organizations like the Fabian Society, were blatant about what they were up to and how they would get the world to, to where they wanted it to go. It was, com- it was an organization's completely, completely intertwined with eugenics and evolution and the need to kill off the useless eaters, as they said in their own words. And that has never gone away. Remember, too, you don't need you don't need the terrible screaming of people being executed to reduce the population. There are many ways to do it. And in the West, and I've read I've lost count of the articles I've read over the years to do with the sperm count dropping, plummeting in the males. How the testosterone is just plummeting too for a long time now. Well studied because those at the top who put the grants out want to keep tabs to make sure that this, these agendas are working. That's why it's well studied. As people go, go sterile, you've never ever heard of any group or even the World Health Organization or any national group coming out and saying, oh, this is a crisis situation, we've got to fix this. It, it, it's, the reason for that is it's because it's planned that way. That's why there's no crisis. If the farmers at the top hadn't planned it this way, and their herd was somehow changing through causes which were not introduced by themselves at the top, they would be in like a shot to find out why it was happening. The reason that they're not in to find is because they know why it's all happening. It's very simple. And the cancers are skyrocketing, as you know, have been for a long time. And... uh, They've even had meetings again for, for medical staff over the years, a long time ago, too. I think Dr. Day was one. But anyway, he said that, that cancers were going to be used to kill off people uh, more and more and more because they're going to die off something and be killed off. It might as well die off cancer, as I said. Today, and I've read the articles too, for quite a long time, showing you the cutbacks of first create the health systems, Use the health systems not just to make big pharma richer, but and let's be honest, there's nothing wrong with the initial idea of a health system. The majority of people who are for it have no idea that the ones at the top maybe have different agendas. Who could be better than having a health system that you pay a minimal thing into? And you've got some kind of system there to help everybody you know, maybe including yourself one day. That's natural. That's very, very natural. Of course it is. But now, the same governments, as they're going more and more and more global, are throwing more and more money across the planet. Not just corporate welfare, but that's a big chunk of it too. Big money to corporations across the world. But also, they're in a mess back home. The UK is a good example. The, the population is so darn huge now. And it's got its doors open, wide open. But the healthcare, and I've read, I can remember reading articles maybe back in the late 90s, about the very same thing at the time, 
the national healthcare system then was uh, guaranteed free care for people coming across small parts of Europe and other countries too. They wouldn't turn them away. You also had welfare, you know, global welfare, globe trotting they called it. And Britain was always the target because they had the best welfare system at all for, for newcomers. There's only X amount of bucks coming off the taxpayers to pay for all this. And it got so bad that, and I read the articles from the mainstream, again, it was from the, 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 the probably Daily Mail and papers like that, maybe the Telegraph or something. And they were going through the facts. In fact, they had it even on, on documentaries on television. But they found out, they, they would do questionnaires with people who were going to kind of come in for operations. All kinds of operations, including severe ones, and even ones for that could end up being terminal if they didn't get caught in time. And everyone knows with cancers, you've got to get the slightest suspicion of something, get in there right away before it spreads all over the place. The people in Britain were put on waiting lists, and then they'd give them questionnaires. How are you doing? Blah, blah. In the meantime, how are you doing? And they would ask me to fill in little forms, like, when are they going on holidays? Now, holidays in Britain could be just moving to, to the next town to see your relatives, for instance, for a week. That could, that's a holiday. That's how it used to be, anyway. Put it that way. I know it's all changed, but that's how it used to be. And when they were gone, the National Health Service would send out the request from them to come into the hospital and have be operated on. Well, they wouldn't find out till they came back. Thousands and thousands and thousands a year this was happening to, to all different hospitals to save money. And of course, when they said, well, we didn't know, or we had gone on a week, well, well I'm sorry, so that's just when we had a, a space for you. So you're, you're back at the bottom of the waiting list again. So by the time you wait again, you probably would be dead by the time they call you and get next time. Uh, th- these are the things that really, really happen. Uh, and it's, it's not a conspiracy theory, by the way. It's well-reported and documented in the regular, regular licensed press. So you're living in a system, as I say, where good people can, can want things like, like a National Health Service. But people at the top who are political animals can have different ideas altogether. And it's rather sad, that, isn't it? We're seeing the same push everywhere now. Well, you know, let's train the public, the grandma and grandpa, and uh, and so on. Well, you know, they're getting old, and do, do we want to really see them alive for another five or ten years? After all, they've had their lives. They've had universities put out papers years ago on the same kind of thing and, to, and how to convince the public to go along with this stuff, nudge you along, if you like, you see. And sure enough, if you do good documentaries, you, you can portray anything in whatever light you want to portray it in using the right kind of, of storyline, uh, professional production, and leave the people in tears or whatever you want them to, to be at the end of it. And they'll go along with whatever program you put out for them. I said, yeah, I guess it's probably the best thing, you know. Yeah. You can, honestly, it's that simple. It's terribly sad to me that they're using all the sciences of understanding the people to manipulate the people. And the people don't even clue in to how they're, be, they're even being manipulated. It's very, very sad. But they are. This hardly a week goes by now without these kind of articles of, well, just let these folk die, you know, and etc. Now, here's an article, for instance, that, that touches on that, too. And, I'm, and it also touches on articles recently that I've read and others have read, too, to do with people who are appointed, politicians are appointed 
to, to dish out certain money across the world, supposedly for third world countries and so on. Although it's, it's far from that these days, uh, who are really just working for lobbyists and, and etc., using the taxpayers' money and pretending they're, they're going to help going to help folk in third world countries. It's, it's just such a scam and terror. When our country's broke, for God's sake, right? Tory MPs pile pressure on Chancellor. That's the one who manages the, the budget, supposedly. To slash Britain's foreign aid bill, as backbenchers call for more to be spent on hospitals and the police. The reason it's getting worse and worse is because folk are not getting... And folk, don't forget folk in Britain now, too. I read that a few years ago. They eventually stopped giving them cataract removal on the National Health Service and various other things, too. Yeah, you're an old person. You know, just, why don't you just go in and die? That's the attitude. And believe you me, if you, if you agree with it, one day it's going to be your turn, too. Don't forget that. Don't forget that. And by that time, they may have moved further along and be offering you the suicide pill before you even reach that age. I'm not kidding you. Anything can be done. Anything at all. Anything can be done with the right money behind it, the right production behind it, the writers, the movements, academia, and so on. Anything can be done, believe you me. Look, look around you today what's happening and what's already happened in different areas. They were unthinkable not long ago. So the MPs have piled pressure on Philip Hammond to slash the amount Britain spends on foreign aid. The Chancellor asked backbenchers to come up with ideas for next week's budget and received more than 220 written submissions from backbenchers. The third most important request behind housing and student finance was for reductions in overseas aid. Many Conservatives backbenchers are angry that Britain is still meeting the controversial target to spend 0.7% of the national income on aid currently around £13 billion. It's a lot more than that when you look at it. Because they're, they're also putting it... You understand, they also do it through the United Nations organisations, the IMF and so on. And when they're building up economies in third world countries, they're literally building factories and so on. And these factories are often owned by the big, well-known international corporations. You find this happening here, and they want to put the money into something back home. Which Anything back home to do with the nation now is called fascism, for those who don't know it. Fascism is now defined, and has been for a long time actually, as people who want to have a nation, rather than have a, an international system with people all belonging to the international system. So why do you bother voting for a country if you don't really have one? Eventually, there won't be anyway. You'll vote for some block thing, like Karl Marx said. You would have a, a united Europe and a far eastern rim group and a North American group as well, or an actual American continental one. And now here is the National Health Service, it says. Considers deliberate three months' wait for routine operations because some patients will, will get better before the surgery. You really are, you truly are in Monty Python in this day and age, with the, with the neuroscientific babble that they come out with. Tell people this and it'll puzzle them so they won't think too far. National Health Service considers their deliberate three-month wait for routine operations because some patients will get better before the surgery. So your body is going to fix itself. If that's the case, I guess no one needs any hospital. We'll all fix ourselves. They've got to have some, maybe it's a miracle that's happened across the planet here. So it says that critics said bosses were hoping patients would go private. I mean, start paying. Years ago, people flooded out of Britain that were doctors. 
because they didn't want to be turned into bureaucrats, which they do become when they go into the national system. I think the same thing thing happened in parts of Canada too. But there was massive, massive, almost like vigilantism by the police and and by the government itself to come down on anyone who was trying to keep uh, private systems going at the time. Now they're opening them up again too. So, but they don't—they still want your money for for the for the national one, but they, they want you to get pay for private as well. So critics said bosses were hoping patients would go private or die before their operation, so the national health service would never have to pay. The scheme being considered by five health trusts in East Midlands and Greater Manchester, which collectively cover almost one million patients. National Health Service England defended the rules and said managers were facing difficult choices over how to spend money. (laughs) So if you need hip, knee and cataract surgery, you face being deliberately kept on hold on hospital waiting lists for a minimum of three months. They actually want to wait until you die. That's that's what they're really saying. And now everything's in the hands of little panels, little self-made panels in hospitals and other worlds. Whether they're going to even save your life or or whether they're going to treat you or whatever. That's, that's what you get today. Astonishing National Health Service England, which runs the health service, defended the rules and said managers were facing difficult choices over how to spend. What do you mean? We've all got difficult choices to do with money these days, don't we? But that's what the money is for. And it was initially, of course, it wasn't meant for a European Union type of thing, but anyone from Europe could go in and have their care done there. Of course it wasn't. And anyway, so... The minimum weight scheme, uh, says, has been considered by the, by the East-South-West Lincolnshire and Clinical Commissioning groups and so on, as well as Trafford CCG in Greater Manchester. Norman Lamb, former Lib Dem health minister, said, this is a shameful indictment of the underfunding of the National Health Service. Well, it was funded okay if you were still basically a nation. It's called the National Health Service. It undermines the core principles, blah, blah. And those who can afford to go private will be able to get treatment on a timely basis, while others will be left waiting in pain and discomfort. It's simply impossible to justify. Well, they'll do it. And Rachel Power, Chief Exec of the Patients Association, describes the scheme as a highly dangerous tactic. It's a signal we are arriving at a National Health Service where patients are deliberately kept waiting to save money. It says, it also has opened the question whether these policies will improve efficiency. I love how they put this rubbish in. Will it, will it improve efficiency as the folk just <laughs> die off at home or whatever? Some patients may get better on their own, but others will suffer worse clinical outcomes because they were treated later. I guess your cataracts just clear up themselves, eh? The National Health Service will then have to spend more money helping these patients cope with the consequences of their inferior treatment. Well... In this wonderful world, there's still an awful class system, isn't there? And there always will be, by the way. Because you're run by world managers. Incredible world managers belonging to the different groups way above government. And that's the system they brought in. They, they said they would use democracy to motivate the public to be behind them. Professor Carl Quigley said there has existed and has existed for some time. At that time, he was talking about from, from the late 1800s, which was the precursor of the Royal Institute for International Affairs group run by Milner. This is a, a system which has existed for some time. And he mentioned that he'd been very familiar with it, he'd worked with them, and he was all for their agendas, basically. He said that it was very similar to what the people, the right believe the, the, the communists and far left work, uh, how they work. That's what the, he says that's, it's often mistaken 
for that, in fact. Well, the reason it is because they're all for using a socialized system. I've mentioned this so many times for over many, many years. It took me years for, before our talk show hosts would pick up on it and run with it, which they do. I never, never mention where they got it. <laughs> but the thing is, it was to do with basically train the public, as I say. Train the public in so many different ways. It's been here for a long time. People think socialism's good because that's all they've heard. So that's good. And it is. A, we're all social creatures, aren't we? But the whole thing is, it's with the masses, as they call it, a massive system of rearing, indoctrination, dumbing down, to an extent, to create a particular type of citizen run on the sort of communistic type system where a government officialdom would, would run your lives basically from birth to death, different agencies and so on. But you have, you have that already in the, in the socialist countries. And we're all pretty well socialists now. And then you have, you have a slightly easier system with the higher bureaucrats who work the system for the masters that also works for the politicians. And above them, you have the big philanthropists, as they call themselves now, the multi-billionaire, trillionaire types who are putting themselves in charge openly. It's not putting themselves. They've really always been there over different generations and running the world's affairs with their own think tanks and foundations, etc. That's what they're really doing. So that's, that's the tiered system. But for the masses of people, you've got basically this socialistic system and you're getting the bare minimum of everything at the bottom, really. You're guaranteed the bare minimum. Well, even with a guarantee, it doesn't always work out, but that's the way they, they talk about it. And they've got most folk on board. And they've trained the people just to be happy and to remain as children forever, have lots and lots and lots of sex. Lots of it. But don't go into what, how it runs the world, for goodness sake. What's wrong with you? Why would you want to know that? That's what they'd say to you. Why would you want to know that? And if you notice, too, all the entertainment they get about the same thing, too. You don't see old people. Anybody who's over 50 and or 60 in the movies have been, for as long as I can remember, pretty well. Apart from the old black and white movies you get maybe from the 40s and 50s and onwards a bit. All the older folk are serial and stupid. That's how they portray them, if you see them at all. That's not by chance. Because the culture industry, as it's called, gets incredible input and financing from your tax money, your, the government agencies that run it all. But folk are trained to think it's all just happening in your life and you're part of this generation, as the Who said, talk about my generation. And you think it's all just, just the way it's happening by itself. I mean, why not? Why not think that? You have your little bit of freedom if you follow all the rules, whatever that rule. And they keep adding to rules. You'd be no half the time if you're, if you're following them properly or not. And they can change them as well at a stroke. But tonight I want to touch on what you don't know. Well, people know, I think, even vaguely, the people who catch little bits and bites of information, as Jack Lull talked about pretty well. They get their understanding through osmosis. They don't think things through critically. It's bits and bites that form their opinions for them and scientifically run and designed that way to be that way. But everyone knows that all your electronic toys not just are listening to you and watching you, but they're sending all the data back to the big boys, above government, in fact, that runs everything. The super government, put it that way. And even the supranational government, way above that, yes. That's how it's really run. Everyone below it, everyone below it is completely understood and, uh, and, and spied on. Of course they are, all their data is there. The supra-government also runs all the financing of the world, which otherwise would be bankrupt. We're in a service economy for most countries. China's almost, in a few other countries in the, in the Far East, are about the only producers left. That are, and, and they were set up to be manufacturers for the world. 
So we are service economies. So much of our economies have gone now in all the different stages of production. Even for one thing, you get five or six or ten stages for different companies and so on to get products made to a stage that was usable for the final product. That's all gone. We don't have that. All the tax money and everything comes from buying things in, passing them around through different middlemen till it's sold to the buyer from the public. And that's supposed to only last a certain time. So what you've got is constant inflation. Every year, your currency is, is worth less. And that's, we're told that's normal. But the thing is, the same supranational managers give you more of it the next year. Because so, otherwise, the system would have fallen apart long ago, wouldn't it? And I think about this once in a while, it hits me and I think, well, goodness sake, it shows you how precise it can be when they can just add zeros to the big number to keep you going a little bit longer. And we don't know how long they plan to keep it going, but the, the cost is just phenomenal now. What's owed everywhere. It's, it's, it was staggering. It's so big, you can't get your mind around it. You, you really honestly can't. And again, we're told it's normal. And we're told that we just keep paying off what we owe, but all we pay off when they balance a budget is what that means. And you can you look at this up for yourself. What it means is they haven't paid off anything that they owed. What they've paid off is the interest for that year on what they owe for the debt. Just the interest, the, the interest for that year, not the collective interest. And we're told we're living in a sane society. It is astonishing, isn't it, when you think about it? Here, for instance, is an article that talks about Britain's colossal debt mountain. It said it's cost taxpayers £520 billion. Now, this is, this is just on the interest payments since the country last balanced the books. So the national debt was nearly sixfold from £317 billion pounds in 2000 to the present, where they now owe £1.8 trillion. And that's an interest. That's not the debt. So the interest payments have cost about £21,000 per household in Britain. This is what they release in front of before the budget comes out, you see. That's also to do with why they're, they're talking about saving money from dishing out money across the planet to try to keep the National Health Service going. Things like that. This can't go on forever. Well, it can, actually. It should not go on this long, as I say, unless you have this, this super class at the very, very top running things. The real, what they call the shadow government, the real guys at the top, who are not nationalists, they're internationalists completely, running all countries' systems about the same, same rate, of course. But we're told this is normal. It's just phenomenal to me, the staggering con. And who knows, maybe cons can, can be made to stretch out for even centuries if need be. I don't know. I guess you could, maybe. Just keep adding numbers to things and so on. Now, getting into how we're managed in a, an even deeper way. As I say, everyone knows just on the surface of what they're thinking that we're all being monitored, etc., and everything electronic that you do. Everything. You, you have no idea how many universities, for instance are in on, on studying us all, given permission to tap into the, the tweets and the twittering and everything else that they do to study us on this and study us on that, even putting stories out and then watching how you, you prattle about the stories. Real or false doesn't matter. They're studying you. That's, the, that's the, what's important about it. It works again because of our conditioning. We're conditioned into a form of belief system of the past, generally. And if you can't really grasp or identify with the myths, the mythologies of the past. You have an awful problem 
trying to accept the present mythologies and the new ones that are put across all the time on you. There's an article here from 2006. It's quite interesting. For instance, and it says, The Creation and Maintenance of Public Myths, Philip Zillico. He was a co-author of a book with Condoleezza Rice. And five years later, despite the vehement protests, it said, of the, the bereaved families, he was made the executive director of the 9-11 Commission. Another of his literary collaborators was former CIA chief, and their article published in 1998 was just as remarkably prescient as the PNAC team's premonition of a new Pearl Harbor. So this guy worked with the PNAC group, and like many of them, they can be very honest about certain things. It's almost as though that even the honesty they know isn't going to penetrate the minds of the public. They're kind of disinterested in things. And one of this article is, was a, it's from an article by Mike Whitney, online journalist, said, Stealing the midterm elections and the power of myth in researching the Bush administration's manipulation of public perceptions. And it really was an amazing propaganda job for the whole, uh, whole wars that unfolded. Came across an interesting summary of the State Department's Philip Zelikov, who was executive director of the 9-11 Commission that greatest of all charades. According to Wikipedia, it says, Professor Zelikov's area of academic expertise is the creation and maintenance of, in his own words, public myths or public presumptions, which he defines as beliefs, one, thought to be true, although not necessarily known with certainty, and two, shared in common with the relevant political community. In his academic work and elsewhere, he has taken a special interest in what he has called searing or molding events that take a transcendent importance and therefore retain their power even as experiencing generation passes from the scene. What he's talking about is, for instance, people went through major wars and the build-up to the wars were, were assaulted by incredible professionally made and delivered propaganda. And that will stick with them for their entire lives, even though many years after the, the events declassified stuff from the government can, can come out there, it doesn't change their opinion at all. Searing, there's a searing or molding events that take on transcendent importance and therefore attain their power even after the experience and generation passes from the scene. He's noted that history's narrative power is typically linked to how readers relate to the actions of individuals in the history. This is awfully important as part. If readers cannot make the connection to their own lives then a history may fail to engage them at all. That's so important, that. And that was from Thinking About Political History, the Miller Center Report, Winter 1999. Isn't that the same as saying there's neither history nor truth? That what is really important is a manipulation of epochal events so they serve the interests of society's managers. Thus, it follows that if the government can create their own galvanizing events, then they can write history any way they choose. If that's the case, then perhaps the entire war on terror is cut from whole cloth, a garish public relations manoeuvre devoid of meaning. And this goes on. It's a good article, actually. It says, in the November-December 1990 issue of Foreign Affairs, that's a magazine, he, Zelikov, co-authored with the former head of the CIA an article entitled Catastrophic Terrorism, in which he speculated that if the 1993 bombing of the World Trade Center had succeeded, that's the prior one, the resulting horror and chaos would have exceeded our ability to describe it. Such an act 
of catastrophic terrorism would be a watershed event in American history. Now, this is, this is 1998, not 2001 or afterwards. This is the guy who talks about creating catastrophic myths or events based on incredible power, basically. So he's saying here in, in foreign affairs, such an act of catastrophic terrorism would be a watershed event in American history. It, w- it would involve loss of life and property unprecedented in peacetime and undermine America's fundamental sense of security, as did the Soviet atomic bomb test in 1949. Like Pearl Harbor, the event would divide our past and future into a before and after. The United States might respond with draconian measures of scaling back civil liberties, allowing wider surveillance of citizens, detention of suspects, and use of deadly force. That's from Philip Zilikoff from Wikipedia. And that was from 1998. And this guy, remember, who, who, who said all that, what is a kind of what-if thing, right? He ends up being the guy in charge of the investigation into 9-11 afterwards. Coincidence, isn't it? But I'll put this link up for anybody who wants to, to see it. It's good. It's a very good article. And you, you couldn't make it up, you, the, the coincidences. Eh? You, could just, you couldn't. Eh? You couldn't. So I'm showing you that, that nothing really is ever how it's given to you. It's all public perception, isn't it? Perception management. Here's another article to get back in, to, to show you how your minds are molded. Actually, they're maybe not your minds at all. Remember, you'll think you're saying, if everyone around you, your own peer group, has the same opinions on, on all the relevant uh, topics of the day pretty well. If they all have the same, same opinions, they're all given to them, then you must be saying because you have the same ones too. That's how you judge each other. It's so easy to do. It's a collective thing. It's a natural thing. And that's why it's used by the experts to work so well. When the media is in on the experiment... For years, investigating the American media's influence on discourse has required studying the conversations we have at homes, in the public square, and in the office corridors to try to understand what prompted them. But a paper published Thursday in the journal Science offers a new, albeit unorthodox, method. The authors brought the media in on the experiment, persuading more than 30 outlets to agree to time publication of some stories so researchers could track how the pieces affected Discussion online. Now, I read before about MIT, for instance, and one of the professors there, two or three years ago, had put out stories, fake stories in history. And then they studied to see how the people ran with it and, you know, and actually believed it all. Well, this is some, something similar, but on a bigger scale even, if you could say a bigger scale. But anyway, so all the papers here agreed to go along with this, this little experiment. They would agree to time publications of some stories so researchers could track how the pieces affected discussion online. What they found is that even a handful of stories by mostly small publications can boost Twitter traffic on topics such as race or climate by 63% over the course of a week relative to a typical day's traffic on that subject. Now think about, too, any topic they could pick and get you going on it will obviously change people's opinions on things simply by the, by the frequency of repetition of it all. If you do a whole bunch in a week or, or a month, and it comes up and up and up, the same topic, you'll start parting the same thing yourself. Well, I guess the climate is changing, blah, blah, blah. You can use that for big, big agendas. In the course of a week, it went up 63% of their chat, all the chatter. Journalists, even at small papers, appear to have a quite substantial power to affect the national conversation about politics and policy, said Gary King, the lead author 
and the director of Institute for Quantitative Social Science at Harvard University. It's quite a good article. You can download, I think, the whole PDF maybe and read it for yourselves because I enjoy these things. I enjoy to see what they're up to and how they're, and they're, they're testing always, always, and everything across the board daily with stacks of tests and surveys on the general public without the public's knowledge. So we must all be predictable for those who rule the world at the very, very top to feel safe and secure. It's very important. They collect all your data, but not just collect your data, shape your minds, shape your topics of conversation. Steer you off topics that might, might be called radical down the road. Down the road, being radical might say that when, when the fingers are, are held up by O'Brien to Winston, you might say what the, how the actual numbers that actually is there is, instead of what you're told to say it is. We're already pretty well there, aren't we? They had their colleagues uh, from Dr. King, Benjamin Schneer of Florida State University, Ariel White, Massachusetts Institute of Technology, naturally, MIT's in on all this stuff, isn't it? They always have been. And they spent almost five years on the study. So there you go, almost five years. Ongoing, eh? The first three years dedicated to observing, as all of you, <laughs> learning from and building trust with journalists as well. Key to getting them on board, he said, was limiting the team's involvement as part of the process that is often arbitrary at the timing of publication. In some sense, you're flipping the coin already, he said. Anyway, it's fascinating to see how much they can actually alter the perception on different topics when they all go into the act at the same time. And then you study all your tweets and Twitters and so on. It's just astonishing. It really is. It's worth reading this, this particular one and get the PDF as well. Another article here, measuring the impact of the media. The active participation of the people is one of the central components of a functioning democracy. And they mentioned King again. And the real-world randomized experiment in the U.S. to understand the causal effects of news stories on increasing public discussion of a specific topic. And they gave another one to look up, Policy Forum by Jenskov. And this is social media posts, for instance, increased by almost 20% the first day after the publication of news stories on a wide range of topics. Furthermore, the posts were relatively evenly distributed across political affiliation, gender, and region of the United States. They demonstrated that exposure to the news media causes Americans to take public stands on specific issues, join national policy conversations, and express themselves publicly. All key components of the democratic politics more often than they would otherwise. After recruiting 40 mostly small media outlets, we chose groups of these outlets to write and publish articles on subjects we approved on dates we randomly assigned. This would be causal effect on proximal measures, such as website page views and Twitter discussions of the article's subjects, and distal ones such as national Twitter conversation and broad policy areas, or intervention increased discussion on each broad policy area. That otherwise wouldn't have happened, right? See how you're being manipulated by 62.7% relative to a day's volume, accounting for 13,166 additional posts over the treatment week with similar effects across population and subgroups. So everybody with a little site or Twitter account starts chatting about it too. You're always being told what to think, what you chat about, what to argue about. And that's how the news media activates public expression and influence national agendas. To power, power, power. Eh? Everything's power. Another article too is this one here. It's an interesting organization 
It's called the Institute for Strategic Dialogue. I remember hearing about it a while back, I think, where, where in Britain, for instance, uh, they had, I don't know if you call them police or spies, going into areas all over Britain and looking for extremism starting up. And so they could intervene. And it makes sense. That makes a lot of sense. Before anything it becomes too extreme. But I thought about too, I thought, well, there's a lot of power for a private organization to have, and it's worldwide. But it was based in London initially, the Institute for Strategic Dialogue, London-based think tank and to-do think that has pioneered policy and operational responses to the rising challenges of violent extremism and intercommunal conflicts, which you have to have in a global society. You, you obviously need something like that because putting all the different peoples together and all the different cultures, all different religions, backgrounds and everything else, never mind the fact that a lot of countries are becoming overcrowded as well. They weren't before. And other countries too, a lot of people are leaving. Uh, there's not enough folk left to do even farming. It, it's amazing across Africa how they always prattle on and prattle on about, oh, the, the starvation. So, but, and it's not because what they often think it is. It's often because there's not enough people left in certain areas because of war and things to even keep the farming going. You've got to always question the whys of things and then look into them. And you're, you're, often, you're, often, you're shocked yourself at times when you find out that, you, that you've got the wrong opinion as well. Anyway, I'm prattling on here. It says, combining research and analysis with government's advisory work and delivery programs, ISD has been at the forefront of the forging real-world evidence-based responses to the challenges of integration, extremism, and terrorism. ISD's founder and president was George Wiedenfeld, uh, Barn Wiedenfeld is his name too. And its director is, or CEO is Sasha Havlicek. It runs a wide-ranging program of work on extremism, from traditional research papers through to facilitation of practitioners' networks and development of counter-narrative tools. So they've got counter-narrative tools. The work ranges from work on Al-Qaeda. That was probably how, I think, how they really started up was, was to try and stop all that from, from getting worse and worse. So you have... I'm sure many well-meaning people, obviously, trying to work across the world for a global system, a global society, in a vastly changing system of, of world governance as we go closer and closer to a long, long-term plan, obviously. And this is the century of change, where at the end of the century, they want it all completed, this whole managed society, the kind of socialistic society across the world, and the, the elite on top, the special elite who run everything, own everything pretty well too. But this, this organization, again, is against far-right far extremism. I'll just see about far-left extremism too. But why isn't there far-left extremism? I mean, the communist system killed way more people in the 20th century than any other war did for its whole existence there. Millions and millions and millions and millions of people were killed right up until the end. But you never find, and that's because it's a similar system they want to bring in to manage the public, the general population. That's the masses in this new system. Again, that's why Quigley talked about it, though they're often mistaken, because they operate and have, they have goals similar to the communist goals. That's why. It's far better to, to manage the public with the government managing everything and managing your lives from birth to death. That's, that's what they want. 
rather than have individualism. The United Nations said years ago that the individual, individualism is the enemy of peace in world government. Anyway, they have all these, these things that sound awfully good. I'm sure they are, a lot of them. And the folk who are victims of violence and the people who've been on the giving ends of violence, not just receiving it, working with them as well. But they also develop counter-narrative tools, etc., etc. And there was psychology, all the different forms of psychology. And they have the outlets, and it's sure to schools and everything, how to put things across. That's all a big power again that can be abused, though, for other things, isn't it? It doesn't matter who's using it. And all the greatest things in the world uh, are presented as flowers from heaven. But they also work with uh, Strong Cities Network, and they work with the internet providers and so on, and policy planners' networks, and also with censoring different kinds of speech on Twitter, Facebook, and all the rest of it. It's a private organization. And they work with also, they also chair the, the EU's Radicalization Awareness Network, and so on. And they work on various social media. Big organization. But it's getting back to what I'm saying. Th- I, I personally think everyone should, even in school, be given real honest, n- not, not bent or pushed or, or slanted information on what they think, but just give them the facts on things. The true facts, with always the, the warning that everything can be used for the wrong purposes, regardless of what, what the claim it was initially set up to be. When you start censoring anything, what's next to censor? Hmm? It never stops until so many things which are so-called politically incorrect will be all censored as well. And that simply means you make your, your, your opinion on something else Nothing to do with hate or anything else is going to be censored. Like, like I say, Winston in 1984, and O'Brien says, how many fingers am I holding up? And, and he tells him, he says, nope, wrong answer. You, you, you've got to, you, it isn't good enough, O'Brien says to him. That eventually he says, I'll, I'll, whatever you say it is, it is if, it's, if it's two, it's, it's two, it's four, it's four. And O'Brien says, no, it's not good enough. You've got to believe it. That's where it's all going to go. They want your mind. Anyway, I'll put this up. It's an interesting interesting site, powerful. I can see the, the reason they'd have it all up there too. But what's really more important really is, is for me, for likes of me and other people too who like to know how things work, is all the techniques that are used with toolboxes for training and all the rest of it across the board to create a uniform society. That's awfully important. Anyway, from a very snowy Ontario, Canada... I hope, I really hope you're all doing okay out there and not becoming fearful of the world because it, it can be a scary place. And let's be honest, as I've said many times, the world, we, we don't last long walking this planet. And that's why, again, big, big, long-term agendas can continue. They take generations to complete. Many folk, most folk, go through life never knowing there's even agendas underway. They don't know that their generation is, is, is getting highly manipulated to go along with drastic changes in culture, outlook, whatever it happens to be, just lifestyle, anything. And it is, it's all planned that way. And, and it's not speculation. You can find the old books and the think tanks involved. Not Today, there's, there's countless think tanks working on all of this. And you don't vote for any of them. Don't forget, that's, that's my main thing. You don't get to vote for any of these characters. 
And you don't get to, to, it's never put to you by our governments. Do you mind if we use these big think tanks to, to create policies when we alter your opinions and perceptions and so on? See, that, that to me is, is real honesty and democracy. You'll never get that. But that, that's the only thing you can push for. Otherwise, I really mean it. It's not my paranoia about this that I'm talking about. I really mean it. It's dangerous. It's very dangerous. When people can write in the Fabian Society, the left-wing organization that worked with the right-wing organization, because you must always have two wings on the same bird. You must make sure you own them all. And they came out with, with their big agenda for, for 100, well over 100 years, right down to ways of sterilizing the public uh, without them even knowing. And you see it happen. You live through it all. And even having w- massive wars that would crush the people until they gave up their, the nation-state. And how they would give you massive, massive amounts of sexual freedom. And the state would even take care of the consequences for you. In 1900, early 1900. And you see it all happening. That's not coincidence. No one, no one is so good at, at putting out a wish list and it all happening. Unless you're in on the guys that make up the list. And then they force it to happen. We're living through, uh, which is still an interesting system. It's very, very interesting. It can be awfully overwhelming, but as I've said, don't beat yourself over the brain. I've done it myself in my own life too. The media now gives us updates on celebrities, people in the entertainment industry who you've, you've watched over the years or listened to if it's music and so on, dying and so on. And it seems to be so many of them dying today. Eh? So many of them just dropping off. I guess it's just that time where that particular era is coming to an end. And you see that... Malcolm Young of ACDC just died as well. One of the, the few groups that came out at the time when it, when it was still a kind of fun thing, that whole rock era. It was a fun thing as opposed to the serious nonsense that came out later as they changed it all. But yeah, it comes to us all. That's what the big boys know too. Whoever we happen to be, even if you're a little nuisance, you'll die off eventually. You'll die off. And that's how they can get things done. As I say... I'm not going to dwell on it, and neither should be proud of you, but you should be aware of it all and how it really does work. One single foundation can hire and, and retire and hire and retire generations and generations of workers to achieve its mandates and its goals. And think of it when you have intertwined thousands of them across the world. Nothing miraculous about it at all. Remember, too, you can... Give me a donation too, throw it my way if you want to. Because I always forget to even mention that. <laughs> From a very windy and snowy Ontario, Canada, I'm Alan Watt. May your God or your gods go with you. Mm-hmm.